Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On November 7th, 1944, the 761st Tank Battalion became the first black division to see ground combat, joining Patton's 3rd Army, ultimately helping liberate 30 towns from Nazi control, including fighting in that infamous Battle of the Bulge. This battalion was known as the Black Panthers. 16 days after this first ground combat mission, the topic of this week's episode was born in LaPorte, Texas. The problem is, that even though these Black Panthers of the 761st Tank Battalion were given, I'm using air quotes here, the right to die for the country, the father of this week's guest was born into an America where he could not simply take a drink of water in many locations because of something as trivial as the color of his skin. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step up the DeLorean, the date is February 11th, 1965. We are standing in the auditorium of Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. It's standing room only. There's even an overflow. Because we are here to listen to Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. give a speech to kick off a fundraising drive for an outreach program to assist Russ College of Holly Springs, Mississippi. Now, in this speech, he called for new civil rights legislation and issued three challenges to the audience that must be met for all of humanity to ultimately survive. First, people must achieve a world brotherhood perspective. Second, the notion of superior and inferior races must be abolished. Lastly, massive action programs must be developed to rid the world of segregation. This was only two months shy of a hundred years after the Civil War ended, April 9th, 1865. And we're still at this time when Martin Luther King gave this speech referring to segregation. And we talked about that in the opening of this episode. Even though these black individuals will go to fight for this country. And that's where we're going to tie in this week's story. Gene Washington played at MSU. During the time frame of this speech, he was a standout wide receiver at Michigan State University, would end up becoming nominated to the College Football Hall of Fame. 
he would go on to become a standout wide receiver at the Minnesota Vikings, a team that would make it to some Super Bowls, considered one of the best Vikings teams of all time. Now, Gene and his black teammates from the South were given an opportunity at MSU by Duffy Doherty. They were able to prove that they could be just as good, if not better, than the white players. It was a different world for them coming up to Michigan State, coming from the segregated South. But I tell you what, they sure did prove those haters wrong. Because in the 1967 draft, Bubba Smith drafted number one overall. Clint Jones, number two. George Webster comes in at the number five pick. And then this week's father, Gene Washington, drafted number eight. All from the integrated Michigan State University Spartans. National champions in 1965 and 66. And although there was a long ways to go and we still got some ways to get there, this team really did help change football and other aspects of everyday life. Just like King referred to in his three challenges in that auditorium just months before these very Spartans won a share of the national championship. But I'm going to go ahead and leave that for this week's guest. This week's guest is Maya Washington. She's going to tell the story of what she ultimately turned into a documentary and a book titled To the Banks of the Red Cedar. This is a story where she was able to uncover her father's journey and share the impact the MSU team of the 60s had on the present generation and beyond. We're going to get into the interview here, but first, I want to let you know that Maya is gracious enough to offer an autographed copy of her book, Through the Banks of the Red Cedar. We're going to give that to one lucky winner. So if you want to be that lucky winner, or even to purchase the book beyond that, you can enter the giveaway over at sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. While you're on the site, don't forget to check out our other podcasts on that work. The Sports History Network is striving to become the headquarters for sports yesteryear. Focusing primarily on the podcast medium as of now, we have 26 podcasts on the network, all covering various stories from the great world of sports history. Again, that's at sportshistorynetwork.com. But for now, let's get into this very important topic, the interview with Maya Washington. So story, it doesn't have to be limited to five story, but let's go with the story behind the documentary and the book. Like, what is the story of Through the Banks of the Red Cedar? Well, you know, Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, both the film and the book are centered around my father's journey from the segregated South to Michigan State at the peak of the civil rights movement in America. And so my dad's name is Gene Washington. And a lot of people know him from his Vikings days. He was um, on some of the best teams in uh, franchise history at the Minnesota Vikings. And he also is a college football hall of famer and a Spartan alumni. So he uh, is in the MSU uh, athletics hall of fame. His name and Jersey number are up in Spartan stadium. And uh, again, he is a college football hall of famer. And what was really unique about his journey is that he was recruited as part of a pipeline that Duffy Doherty, the head coach at Michigan State uh, throughout the uh, late 50s and 60s and into the 70s and beyond, 
was recruiting black players out from the segregated South and the Jim Crow South. So these players who could not go to schools in their home states because of the color of their skin were given opportunities at Michigan State and they seized those opportunities and led to two uh, very successful MSU teams, the 1965 and 1966 national champions. So both the film and the book really talk about how what happened over 50 years ago is still relevant today. I grew up in a completely integrated world. I grew up after my dad's athletic career ended. He's also an NCAA hurdling champion. So he's someone uh, who's very accomplished in a variety of sports. Um, But a lot of that, all of that was before I was born. So I grew up with a dad who put on a suit, went to work every day, um, and the football stuff was, uh, you know, in the man cave and then occasionally uh, might come up every now and again at the grocery store or someone might recognize him or it was just sort of a known uh, fact in our community that my dad uh, was a Vikings alum. So when I found out in 2011, when his teammate Bubba Smith passed away, Uh, that it was a Smith family that recommended my dad for that opportunity at Michigan State and started to think more about, well, wait a minute, how did Michigan State actually find my dad in the segregated South uh, so far away from East Lansing, Michigan? And hearing about that at the memorial service for Bubba Smith really hit me hard because it was too late to say, wow, that's amazing. You changed my dad's life, you know, Bubba Smith, your father and you made this huge difference in my dad's life and ultimately my life, the things that have been possible for me uh, all tie back to that one gesture. And so it is uh, also a father-daughter story, uh, the process of me becoming aware of of some of this history, going back and interviewing his teammates, uh, the last living coaches, scouring this uh, footage from these uh, key times in my dad's athletic career, and hopefully sharing with all audiences, uh, those who really are true diehard football fans and football historians, hopefully expanding on uh, that knowledge of what people know. But then I'm very excited that I've hopefully expose people who weren't thinking about football or weren't thinking about the ways that uh, football was a key part of progress in our country and and the way that things shifted and changed in college and pro football in the late 60s and early 70s still is relevant today, still uh, impacts us today, uh, even if we're not um, uh, football aficionados that that football is the kind of sport that reaches into all facets of uh, American life for sure. Yeah. When I was reading, you know, some learning a little bit more about this story and I'll, I'll be straightforward. I mean, I feel a little embarrassed as, as a guy from Michigan, but I didn't realize the story of the 65 through 67 and beyond team of the, of the Spartans and what it meant to the overall impact of the desegregation of, of like the sports at the college sports at that time in football that it, it kind of, I don't know if this really made a revelation or not to me, but I thought back to my days and maybe someone with the last same name, there was a coach or a guy that played a coach in a movie. Do you remember that? Remember the Titans movie? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when I was younger growing up, 
I was I was kind of like I was in a smaller school, right? Where it was in a smaller town in the middle of Michigan, where it wasn't segregated by standard, but because of the general like the region where I grew up, you know, I wasn't introduced to a lot of that. And then remember the Titans. I remember that was like one of the first times, and I started thinking about what people had to deal with back in the day, and they still do, but to a different degree. And it mm-hmm. just got me thinking about that movie again and the experiences, unfortunately, that people have had to go through throughout time. You know, did you, was there like a specific moment that you, it kind of clicked in your head going through this experience that you're like, man, what did, this is what my father and everybody had to go through back then. And then what they overcame to where we are now. Well, absolutely. You know, growing up, um, I always knew that both of my parents grew up in segregated environments. That was just part of the family narrative I was aware of and why my parents really instilled education as a value uh, because it was something that they barely had access to. My grandparents certainly did not have access to, and they really committed their professional lives to opening doors for other people. So I did know about um, racial segregation and uh, what that was like um, for them, how humiliating, how stifling uh, that was for them. And it always sort of colored um, what my life was like growing up in the North, growing up in Minnesota in an integrated environment, but being aware of race, being conscious of the way that people reacted to me uh, and other people of color in our community Um in, in a community where I grew up that was primarily white. And so those things, when, when you're on the receiving end of uh, a certain look or somebody saying something to you or this kind of feeling that, wait a minute, there's, there's something else here. You know what I mean? Or sometimes my classmates just flat out saying racist things or their parents or grandparents, you know, saying things right in my presence, you know? Um, that was something I was very much aware of. But I think the details, though, that my dad was part of this historic uh, desegregation that happened at Michigan State University was very much lost on me and perhaps lost on him uh, without the distance of that 50 years. And in, in 2011, when he was inducted to the College Football Hall of Fame, and we had that perspective to kind of really look at how that timing and what happened at Michigan State really changed the face of the game because it coincided with uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act. Major shifts were happening in the United States, and the president of Michigan State University was actually the chairperson for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. So the university president had created a climate and an environment that made all of this possible. So, you know, when I asked my dad, like, did you know that you were, you know, you were going to be part of this historic team that would be responsible for the final full integration of college football? At the time, they were just really thinking about, okay, I have a shot to to leave the South to get an education to compete to the best of my ability. And that's what was on their minds, you know? And I think that's pretty common for anyone who's found themselves at the as the first in any kind of field or in any kind of uh, situation. But certainly for Black Americans in my dad's generation, people who are still with us in their late 60s, uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, 
uh, they were living through the history that was upon them. Uh, and it took 50 years for us to really understand uh, what they did. And, and I'm excited to have been blessed with an opportunity to make that more available to people through the book and the film, because uh, even I didn't know this detail and he's my own, you know, he's my dad, <laughs> you know? Um, so I'm, I'm very excited and grateful uh, that people have been so receptive. And as you, you know, shared about uh, Remember the Titans, you know, that um, we can tell these stories and regardless of where we grew up or how we grew up, if we weren't exposed to certain things that the arts um, shows like yours, uh, books, um, you know, uh, we can be exposed to things that uh, we may not have known about. So it's, it is pretty exciting to be able to share this. Yeah. And today's age with you mentioned, so, I mean, my type of show, I'm just a dude sitting in a room that, you know, I was recording in my, my <laughs> I was recording in a closet for a while, just sending out digital information to the world. And I had people from different parts of the country. So or I'm sorry, even the, the, the earth, it's just amazing how, now we have that medium. It's just like, let's utilize it to be able to send out the messages and stuff. And sometimes I think there has to be a, 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 a perfect storm, if you will. And you kind of alluded to it just a little bit there with uh, President John Hanna at MSU. And then you, you you spoke about Coach Duff Doherty. But can you maybe go a little deeper in their roles into not just the team, but then the overall kind of pushing past that barrier of segregation? Well, the thing that I found really fascinating about Duffy Doherty is he founded the Coach of the Year Clinics. They're now known as, I think it's name sponsored by Nike. So I think it's the Nike Coach of the Year Clinics now. Uh, but this was like a circuit that he and Bud Wilkinson, who was at Oklahoma at the time, started to develop a network of friendship and camaraderie between college coaches and even some professional coaches around the country, as well as like high school coaches. But because of segregation, uh, when they would go to the South, they could not have black coaches and white coaches in the same room, <laughs> which is, you know, think about that. Um, they couldn't fraternize, they couldn't network together, and they couldn't create these opportunities, right? And so Duffy Doherty went out of his way to create separate experiences for black coaches in the South. So they would either go in a separate room in the hotel or they would engage in, uh, in a, an additional hotel somewhere else or some other venue. And he consciously made relationships with black college or excuse me, black high school coaches and sometimes would bring those coaches up to Michigan State so they could tour the facilities. They could get a, a sense of what they could tell uh, the men back in their home states about the university. So there was this really clever network um, that he created through a mainstream platform, the Coaches of the Year Clinics. Um, in my book, uh, there is a scene where my dad, Clinton Jones, myself, and um, Bud Grant, and some of the um, staff of the Vikings go to a, a lunch together. And he starts telling us that he went to one of Duffy Doherty's, you know, clinics. So even, even Bud Grant, you know, went up to, I think 
he said it was somewhere near the border. I don't know if it was in Canada or sort of um, somewhere in upper Minnesota, northern Minnesota or North Dakota, somewhere on that that boundary that he had attended one of Duffy Doherty's coaching clinics. So to have that kind of innovation and that kind of reach around the country that Duffy Doherty had to have Biggie Munn as an athletic director who was a former head coach of the football team uh, be in the athletic director role. But then you have John A. Hanna, the president of the university, who is reporting to two uh, presidential administrations um, and then ending with the Johnson administration, you know, um, Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson at this pivotal time. Uh, and what I think is really cool about John Hanna is um, he's a he was a poultry farmer. So he's a his total Michigan farm kid <laughs> uh, who ends up becoming the president of a, a major university that was essentially an agricultural college uh, when he first got started. And his tenure uh, really put Michigan State University on the map and uh, created this pathway for inclusion to be demonstrated in the institution. Yeah, I mean, again, that was another name that I hadn't known a whole lot about. And people probably in my neck of the woods are like, hey, you probably should know more about this because <laughs> being from Michigan, uh, we're more of a, a University of Michigan family, I suppose, <laughs> between the two, but I don't follow college that well. Another thing I, I didn't realize was the national champions back in the early, the mid-60s. And then with Jimmy Ray and being the first black quarterback to win a national championship, you get a little bit of that story. Is your father, what was a story that you could share that maybe your father relived a moment with Jimmy Ray and the, and, and the team there? Well, one of the fun things that um, I got to know more about interviewing uh, Jimmy Ray, as well as Vince Carolot and um, Hank Bulla, as well as my dad. So um, when my dad, so my dad's freshman year, they, they could not um, compete varsity. You have to kind of have that waiting year before you can actually um, be on the team. So the sense uh, at Michigan State, even in 1963 with this recruiting class that came in that had a lot of awesome athletes, but a number of them who were African-American and also awesome. Uh, so there was something that was kind of in the air. And uh, among the funniest stories is that they would help prepare the varsity team for games and would be told they were getting a little too aggressive and getting the best of the varsity team. So they had to kind of, you know, um, turn it down a notch or, 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 you know, in those uh, scrimmages early so that uh, the varsity team would be prepared for the game and, and not beat up on, you know, by the freshman squad. But uh, what is cool, the things that I did learn about Jimmy Ray specifically is when uh, my dad had moved up um, and joined the varsity team when Jimmy Ray was doing his uh, recruitment visit and visiting the campus. Uh, they had him throw a few passes to my dad. And what's really interesting about why the experiment, if you will, of, of, of sort of the fish out of water experience for both the athletes who were recruited, but then also for Michigan State University, is the extent to which they, like they understood that if you're going to recruit, you need to give that um, 
recruit the sense that when they get to the university, they're going to be comfortable. They're going to feel like they fit in. They, they're going to feel like they have an opportunity. So uh, Duffy Doherty and the coaching staff really utilize the current players uh, to inspire those recruits to feel like, okay, I see other black men here. I see this person and, and to, and to make them feel like they were part of that community and that if they came, they would, they would be well received. But uh, one of the very, touching uh, aspects of Jimmy Ray's story that he shares in the film. Uh, and I touch on in the book is that he was a little concerned though, in the same way that the, you know, upperclassmen were, were there to be encouraging and, and show him around. They also, a few put, you know, a little bug in his ear that, Hey, I know you're quarterback, but you may not be given a chance at quarterback if you come here, you know? And so if you're looking at other schools, you know, keep that in mind, you know, Willie Thrower uh, was, um, you know, a very uh, legendary and important um, Spartan, but the idea of being a starting quarterback and having, having an opportunity as a black man was, was something that uh, these upperclassmen were warning, you know, (laughs) time will tell if that's the case. And so uh, Jimmy Ray's mother uh, in a final conversation with Duffy Doherty over the phone you know, asked, are, are you going to let my son play quarterback? If he, if we say, yes, he can go to Michigan state university. Are you going to have, will he be able to continue as a quarterback? And according to Jimmy Ray, uh, Duffy's response was he'll play quarterback until he decides he doesn't want to be a quarterback. And so that was uh, really an important moment that gave uh, Jimmy Ray and his family some confidence that he would be uh, given a true shot to shine and to meet his full potential. And so um, his his story is just really uh, remarkable and significant. You know, he went on to coach in the NFL as well. Uh, he has a book uh, with um, a writer named Tom Shanahan, and that is called Ray of Light. So that book contains stories um, based on Jimmy Ray's experience, but also uh, other members of the team who uh, talk about that history and and their sort of unique relationship to uh, those 65 and 66 teams. You mentioned fish out of water. It gets me thinking, uh, I'm trying to, I couldn't even imagine like, so going again from the segregated South to up in the North and kind of being hesitant, almost like is, is this for real? Is this really what they're going to allow me to do? I mean, kind of like me going into maybe like some new job that I don't in a different country that I, are you sure this is really what they're getting? I mean, what was it like the actual day-to-day campus life type thing for your father? I think you really nailed it. I mean, it's, it was a completely different culture, (laughs) um, completely different climate. You know, you got, uh, young men from the South have never seen snow. Um, but little things that really, to me, hit home. And I think it's important for our generation uh, to really understand things you take for granted, like going on a road trip and being able to stop and use a restroom or, you know, run into a store to go pick something up. They could not do that. They couldn't use public restrooms unless there was a colored restroom. Um, they couldn't travel interstate uh, in their car without the fear of the possibility of being stopped, harassed, killed, accused of something that they didn't do, 
hunted, you know, those were the, the pressures and stresses. And so among all of the men who were from the South, the weirdest thing for them was not only like flying on an airplane, but being greeted by a white person who was going to pick them up and drive them <laughs> to the campus hotel that not only could they stay at, but they could walk in the front door and to be able to sit down in a restaurant order from a menu and have the waiter or waitress be a white person serving them food. So all of these things that are so pedestrian <laughs> and everyday about, you know, um, life was the first for them. And, and they were the first in their families to have this kind of experience or interaction um, with white people uh, that was very, I wouldn't say challenging to get used to, but it's, it's like the very things that they were doing as part of their recruitment trip, you know, they could have ended up in jail, you know, or um, beat up or harassed, you know, um, or worse in their home States. So it's just a very um, surreal thing when you really try to imagine what life was like for them. Um, because it is so different now. And they worked really hard to make sure that they were successful so they wouldn't have to go back to those conditions. But they also knew that this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. So uh, achieving to the highest of their ability was was what they focused on and what they what they did to cope with a lot of those um completely uncomfortable new uh, experiences, uh, even just having classmates who were white. Uh, my dad grew up in a community where there was a high school uh, a block or so away from his home, but because of the color of his skin, he had to be bused all the way over to where my mom grew up, um, which worked out. He always says in speeches, the one positive thing about segregation is I met my wife, Claude, at the ninth grade <laughs> when we were bused to the same school. Um, and so the magnitude of what this opportunity meant for them and the opportunity for their white classmates and sort of even what you were describing about segregation or separation that wasn't necessarily uh, a mandate, you know, or some kind of government uh, requirement, but, you know, as we know, um, as we, especially with um, things like housing covenants and red lines, and we, we learn and we look, and actually there were ways that in the North people were kept se segregated just in a different way, a little bit uh, more quietly. But the benefit was, yes, um, it changed my father and his teammates from the South's lives, but it changed those white players' lives too. It changed that community's life in, in Lansing and East Lansing to, to have the benefit of these outstanding and amazing men in their community um, that had they not been there, um, a lot of people's lives might have uh, gone differently. And so I think that's always important, especially in times like this, to think about um, inclusion doesn't only benefit <laughs> the group or groups who are being allowed, right, or uh, given 
opportunity, it actually uh, enhances the lives of everyone because no one's being cut off from the experience of uh, bettering their life. And especially in a team atmosphere in football, um, being the best they can be and not being limited uh, because of race or ethnicity and in, in terms of what an, a community can achieve and what a team can achieve. That reminds me of actually a part of, so I listened to the Martin Luther King speech from 65 at MSU as part of this preparation. And there was a part, and I'm, I'm guessing this is the same kind of, uh, I don't know, theme, maybe if, if you will, but in, in the middle there, he mentioned something about, you know, the various sacrifices that people were going through through the civil rights movement. And then about, and I'm going to totally butcher, I don't remember how the words went, essentially about, you know, the um, killing the idea within the white man's or, or waking them up or something along those lines. But like what you just said, being able to be a part of a team together and being able to maybe mm-hmm. squash some of the differences that you thought you had when in reality, you know, so if you walk working towards the same goal, then, you know, you ultimately going in the same direction. And, and it brings me back to that the movie I talked about. Remember the Titans again, uh, for me growing up, I wasn't necessarily, like you said, by law mandate, whatever it is segregated, but, geographically speaking i pretty much was and then that movie really shed a lot of light on me even though i was a little bit older in life than i would have liked to have been and speaking of that so now i got to get back to the question i was going to ask uh did did your father ever express the, almost i don't what's the right word here not um not ashamed he, he felt almost like why me i feel bad that i'm getting this uh, additional privilege where, you know, my, my, my friends and family back home are still dealing with the things that I had to deal with as far as segregation goes. Did he ever express that kind of hurt that he felt from there? You know, I think that's a, a really brilliant question because I, I think it's important to note and something he does speak about um, when people ask, you know, what it meant to go to Michigan state because the whole time, he was at Michigan State University, and even for most of his pro career with the NFL, his hometown was still segregated. And so his uh, little sisters were sort of among the first uh, to integrate, you know, like once it kind of was clear that the South was going to have to deal with the school system and deal with those issues. Um, so I think it's always been challenging for him because our family members who were in the South during that time really did endure the worst, <laughs> you know, the worst of treatment, the worst of um, being completely limited and restrained in what you could accomplish, what you could dream for yourself and for your life. And for him uh, and my mother, they determined that they would raise their children in the North, that they made a home in Minnesota and have been there uh, for, I think, 55 years. <laughs> um, because uh, going back uh, was not an option for them. It, it was really that that painful. And especially for my dad, my mom, there were chapters of life where she you know, fantasize about, well, maybe we could retire, you know, go back home and we would go home for... Um, you know, the summer or uh, we, we would, well, I say home because that's the closest thing I have to a home, you know, our, our um, ancestral lineage in Texas and Louisiana. 
Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's bittersweet, you know, cause I talked to my aunt, um, and while my dad was away at college, like her life was, was falling apart. Things were really hard back home for them. So I think that has always been, um, just a real, a real energetic presence around, um, that question of having opportunity and knowing that, um, others are still in a condition or in an environment um, that is not ideal. My dad and my mom did the best that they could to get other family members up to Michigan State. So my aunt, my mom's sister uh, came to Michigan State. They got her in and she got her education there. Um, My cousin Ted, their nephew, same thing. He got a band scholarship. They all lived in married housing. Uh, during my dad's pro career, and he would come back and and work on his master's degree on in the off season. My mom finished her degree at Michigan State, and so they all lived in a I think a two bedroom with my with my oldest sister Lisa as a toddler. <laughs> um, they lived you know in married housing. All of these people. Uh, my dad uh, supported Duffy Doherty's pipeline by uh, introducing him to other players um, from the Baytown and Laporte area. Uh, the Beaumont, the uh, Golden Triangle. So he really devoted as much of his life and as much as he had uh, the capacity to, to creating those opportunities and getting oppor- getting opportunities for other family members, other community members, uh, because he understood just how how difficult things were for them and what a difference that educational opportunity would be. And I think that's why he devoted his professional career after football and even during football to opening doors. Uh, Just thematically, I think that is how he continued to pay it forward, that I had this incredible opportunity. How do I create this incredible opportunity for others? How do I I make this um, real? for other people. Uh, and there's so many people I cannot even tell you because I really can't tell you how many emails I get, how many messages I get where someone says, Oh, I heard you on this, or I saw the film and your dad did this for me. Your dad helped me get this job. Your dad, da, 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 da. your, your mom, you know, like people, um, it's really kind of cool. One of my friends joked, oh, so like your your parents publicist now. Sometimes people reach out to me just because they were like, you know, I remember your mom. She used to pray with me at church on Friday nights or I remember your dad did this. Um, and so that theme or that spirit of knowing they had an opportunity and a door open for them and they went through it. Uh, with that tension of knowing that that was not happening for other people in their hometown. Um, so they really went out of their way over and above and beyond uh, to the best of their ability to try to create those pathways for other people. Yeah. I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll give you a plug, even though you need to start this back up, but the light and shadow podcast that you had about a couple years ago, the first episode, every day is a gift, right? That, uh, yes, <laughs> yes, that, that I, that listening to, um, you know, doing some homework on this episode, listening to your father speak on that episode and some of the stories and such, I could tell that he had that 
has had he has that personality of i want to always do what i can to help others i want to i want to be able to like you said play it pay it forward and that kind of thing so i just wanted to say appreciate you know his story and appreciate him i mean even though i won't you know haven't been able to speak to him but you have so that's why we're going to get to the first again i'm showing the delorean here everybody on the on the mic listening to this show knows what i'm talking about so i'm going to give you a delorean question okay all right. You get to go back in time in the DeLorean. You stole my keys. Whatever you want to do, you knock me out in the passenger seat. It doesn't matter like Jennifer Parker. But this is kind of like a twisted DeLorean what-if question. You can keep all mm-hmm. of the knowledge that you have into a, like, you can you can bottle it up. You go back to your younger self, maybe, you know, five years old or something, about what you've learned through this project. Insert that knowledge into your five-year-old self. How do you think growing up from there would have maybe impacted your decisions or pursuits or interests or whatever it is. How do you think that might've impacted you growing up? Wow. That's powerful. Well, I'm thinking about five years old and you know, how I was talking about my dad's man cave, uh, all the memorabilia on the walls. My older sisters um, were uh, 10 and seven years older than me. So I just thought they were super cool. They were teenagers and Anytime I got an opportunity to play with them or play Barbie dolls is what was cool. You know, um, I would, with all this information I have now, when I was playing Barbie dolls in my dad's memorabilia <laughs> cave, um, I might have asked him questions about what was on the walls and what they meant. You know, I might have um, sat in his lap and asked to watch football and asked him to tell me about you know, football and, and, um, uh, the blessing though, at five, I did get to go, he would drive me to my Montessori every day. Um, and that was like our thing because my sisters had a different school and and my mom was sort of on top of getting them to school, but we would have a nice, you know, 30, 40 minute commute in morning traffic before the sun came up every morning uh, to, to drive in the car. And then he'd pick me up from school. Uh, so I, I wish I had, I'm not even sure if at five years old, I knew he was a football player or had been a football player. <laughs> like, I don't even know how much of, of him having a life before me, um, was on my mind. So I definitely, that's what I would have done with all of that knowledge I have now. I would have, um, in my five-year-old brain and mouth would have said, Dad, tell me about your life before I was born. <laughs> you know, that's wonderful that you're you're a producer, director, and all these other things. So you you can appreciate this wonderful transition that you just gave me because the next DeLorean question was going to be, go back to one of your father's, a moment from your father's career right now with everything you know, and go ahead and ask him a question at any point in his life. What question would you ask and when is the moment? Oh, my goodness. Um, I would, because it's winter, uh, I, I would probably go to one of the, um, end of season games in the winter of like 1968 or 16, probably 69 for sure. Cause that was a good year for the Vikings 69 and, and be like, how, how are you not freezing here? Bud Grant doesn't allow you to wear gloves. He doesn't allow heaters. And how on earth are you able to 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 play football in negative temperatures? Um, I have to this day I don't know how he did that, but 
that I would love to be there for that and 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 maybe say, look, I got a, you know, I brought this back from the future, this, this hand warmer, <laughs> just, just put it in your um, tights here. <laughs> and, and I, and no one will know, but you can keep your hands warm. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good one because uh, yeah, I'm, I am not a cold weather person, even though I live in Michigan and everything. And one of the, that's a story you probably picked up, you know, through your journey of the documentary and then ultimately the book that just released. So uh, let's let the book of the same title. Why don't you go ahead and say what the book and the story, the documentary are one more time for the listener of the show. Sure. So the film is called through the banks of the red cedar. It's currently on uh, PBS nationwide. You can just check your local listings or go to the Amazon prime uh, PBS documentaries channel. And uh, the book is called Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, My Father and the Team That Changed the Game. And that is available on Amazon and Kindle, hardcover and paperback, but also at your favorite bookstores. And there's an audible version or an audiobook uh, version that's available. So um, hopefully one or both uh, is an avenue that people can learn more about this history. And then if the, if the listener is interested in like to gather all this stuff in one place, you know, a website address, where would you want them to go to? Sure. So what's exciting now, um, Amazon, because the full length version of the film is actually available on that PBS documentaries channel. So if you go to Amazon and search through the banks, of the red cedar, you'll find both the book and the film now um, in that uh, Amazon search. Uh, you can also visit our website through the banks of the red cedar.com. And that has information about both the book and the film uh, information about uh, events that are happening and uh, other things that we share. If you're really uh, interested in, in engaging with us, but yeah, the Amazon man, bless us. Amazon is, is becoming more and more the place to go for kind of all the things, but it's definitely a great place to, to get both the book and the film right now. Okay. So here's the part where I ask you to impart some last words of wisdom for the listener of the show from your journey through the banks of the red cedar. I think the words of wisdom that I want to impart is that history is in your own household. There is someone in your own household who was the first to do something or was part of, or next to something very interesting. And it's just a matter of taking the time to find it, to have those conversations, especially if you have elders still available to you in your life, uh, whether that's your parents or uh, extended family or someone in the community that you look up to, there's, there's stories, there's history there. And to also remember that we are living history, that the choices we make, the connections we build, the ways that we move in the world right now, will have an impact 50 plus years into the future as well. There you go. Dive into your family history. Who knows what you're going to learn about, but I guarantee it, you're going to learn something cool about something that someone in your family did long before you were on this planet. Something I learned about my last name through the research for this episode was Corporal Carlton Chapman. He served in Patton's Army but he served in the 761st Tank Battalion. And there's a photo of him sitting on the tank from the National Archives in the National World War II Museum.org. Yes, he is a black man. No, I am not. 
But the only thing that matters is that caption. He fought for this country and did everything he could to help people in need. Probably mostly white people. I know nothing about Corporal Carlton Chapman other than he fought as part of the Black Panthers. But I still want to give my brother from another generation a salute through time because he put his life on the line. Sacrifice for this country and for everyone else. So, all I got to say is thank you, Corporal. And also thank you to Maya for being so gracious with her time to share this incredible story. We only dove into a little bit about the story of Gene Washington, the Duffy Doherty teams, and everything else revolving around the Jim Crow South. So, I highly encourage you head over to throughthebanksoftheredcedar.com, pick up the book, watch a documentary, and do everything else you can do to learn more about this story. Because I know me personally, and I'm speaking for myself only at this time, I will never truly be able to understand the topics that was discussed in this episode. I mean, I can try. I'm trying my best, but I can never fully put my shoes in there. All I can try to do is just to learn about it and make sure that we do our darndest not continually making these same mistakes. Because at the end of the day, we're all family. And speaking of family and family history that Maya talked about, that brings us to next week's guest, Jeremy McFarland. You might have heard of this dude before. He's the host of the Football is Family podcast on the Sports History Network, and he rides shotgun with us in the next episode to share the origin of both his love for the Titans and the podcast. Plus, we might get into a little trouble back in time by letting him take the keys of the DeLorean and alter a moment from Titans history. I'm going to let you guess. Which one do you think that was? Tune in next episode to find out. And the best way that you can make sure that you don't miss out on any episode is by mashing that little subscribe or follow button on your podcast player choice. That way you get the hottest, freshest out the press episodes every other week. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. 
head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.